Just a word of further explanation of mission dignity. There's a verse in the book of Proverbs which carries with it a great promise. It says, He who is generous will be blessed because he shares some of his food with the poor. And God has given us a big family. It's bigger than our local church family. It's bigger than the church in El Paso or in what is in El Paso. It's a worldwide church. And we have the opportunity, I have had the privilege over the years, of participating in Mission Dignity. And I know that if the Lord would lead you to do that, you'd be blessed because you're sharing some of your food with the poor. And they'll be blessed by you too. Thank the Lord. Please take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Proverbs. We're going to be looking today at Proverbs 18.10. And this morning I'm going to read Psalm 18.10 from the New American Standard Bible. Invite you to follow along in whichever version of the Bible you have. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. I was recently reflecting on my boyhood, trying to trace back through the corridors of my memory what my first memories were. One of the first memories occurred when I was a preschooler. I was living on Heckle Avenue. My next door neighbor was Robert Wilder. He was known by those who knew him well as Butch. Butch was two years older than I. And the story which lingers in my memory is one I am not totally clear on, but there are certain parts of it I'm very clear upon. I remember being chased by Butch. Butch remembers two years older than I. And I was running as fast as my little preschool legs could take me. And I was headed for my house. We were next door neighbors. It seemed like an eternity, but finally I reached the steps. There were about four or five steps until I got onto the little porch, and then it was summertime. The door was closed. There was a screen door, which was open, and I bolted through, and as soon as I got the screen door pulled, do you remember screen doors? Some of you are. Some of you don't even have a clue. But I pulled it, and I got the hook in the latch, in the little hook, and... I turned around to him and I said, Butchie boy, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Now, I tell that story. I think I remember all those things, but you know how stories grow over the years. But my grandmother was in the house and she was fond of telling that story about Butchie boy and me. The reason I felt capable of saying that at that moment, I had not felt that as I was being pursued by Robert Wilder. But the reason I could say that is because I was in my father's house. And I knew my daddy would take care of me. If I could just find refuge in his house. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. The word translated safe literally should be rendered this way. The righteous runs into the name of the Lord which is a strong tower, and he is set on high. Are you aware that if you know Jesus Christ, you have been set on high by the Lord? God has raised you from the dead spiritually. And consequently, you are seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. You are in a place of ultimate safety because of your relationship to him. In biblical Parlance, whenever you come across someone being spoken of in the name of that person, it's speaking about the person himself or herself. In this case, it's the name of the Lord. This name, Lord, is the name which God gives himself. We first encounter it in the book of Exodus when Moses is interacting with God in the burning bush. It's all new to Moses. And we remember when Moses asks the Lord, Whom shall I say sent me when I do follow through with your order to go and deliver your people out of bondage? And God spoke from the bush. He tells him, Tell them that I am that I am 
sent you. Jehovah is sending you. And this name is a multifaceted name. It's more than one dimensional. And this name is a strong tower. And if we can find refuge in it, we are going to be safe. Last week, at this time, I was talking about a verse, part of a verse actually, from the book of Psalms, the 90th Psalm in the fourth verse. It's the Psalm of David. And David makes this statement. He says, but I am in prayer. And if you remember from last week, that when he says, I am in prayer, the word in really was not coming out of his mouth, nor out of his pen. It was supplied by the translators of our Bibles to make more sense. Literally, this is what he was saying. I am prayer. He was saying, in effect, the essence of who I am is prayer. I am a representation of what a person of prayer looks like. We looked at an acronym, CATS, C standing for confession. It's a good place. In fact, it's the absolute necessity for me to begin there if I hope for my prayers to be heard. Because the Bible says in Psalm 66, 18, If I had regarded iniquity in my heart, that is sin, the Lord would not have heard me. So I can praise the Lord till I'm blue in the face, but if I have existing sin in my life, sin that I am aware of and have confessed and repented of, if I get rid of that, then I have access to the Lord. But if I hold on to that, I'm wasting my time praising the Lord, thanking the Lord, asking the Lord. I might as well save my breath because He's not going to hear me. It's not because He is ignorant It's not because he doesn't know everything. It's because the standard that God has established for our prayers being heard is that we have done business with him by confessing our sin to him. Then the other avenues of prayer that we saw last week, adoration, thanksgiving, supplication, that meaning praying for things for ourselves, asking the Lord to supply our needs, but not merely ours, but the needs of others. Those prayers are prayers which the Lord can answer. Now, you might say, well, Mike, what about people who don't know Christ? How do they get to the Lord in prayer? Well, they come before the Lord and they confess their need for Jesus Christ. That's how they get there. Then the avenue for answered prayer becomes a highway which they can travel. I am a person who has been taught, and I'm grateful for those who taught me, and I have sought to practice the daily habit of coming before the Lord in personal worship, having a quiet time before the Lord. I was thinking about this, and I was with a group of men yesterday morning. Actually, it was our deacons. We were having a deacons meeting yesterday morning. And I was sharing with the men about the absolute necessity of being able to listen to God, hear His voice, in order to accomplish what God would have any of us who are children of God to do. And then I confessed to the men, I said, Men, I must tell you that more often than I would like to think that there are moments in my life when I am reading the Bible, and I'm reading the Bible so I can hear from the Lord, and all of a sudden I've read almost an entire chapter and I can't remember a thing which I read. Anybody happen, have that happen to you? It's not because I'm losing my memory. It's because I'm distracted. I get off path. Instead of listening to the Lord, I'm listening to other voices which are clamoring for my attention. So if that's your case, what we're going to look at this morning hopefully will help you. Not just in your quiet time, but in your life. It will hopefully invigorate you when you consider the name of the Lord. And you indeed, if you have not yet found Him to be your high tower, a place of refuge, a place of ultimate safety, you will find that as a strong likelihood, if not something that you already embrace in your life. So let's turn to Psalm 23. This is the most beloved psalm of all the 150 psalms. 
I would imagine. And many of you could quote it from memory. I remember reading about a little girl. She was probably six or seven years old and her Sunday school teacher had challenged the students in the class to memorize the 23rd Psalm. The teacher had set a Sunday when the students would come and they would recite the 23rd Psalm. And this particular Sunday came, the little girl stood and she was very proud of herself. She had worked so hard on memorizing and she was ready for the moment. There was no hint of nervousness in her body language or in her voice. And this is the way she began her recitation. The Lord is my shepherd. He's all that I want. Wasn't that cute? It's more than cute. It's true. If we have the Lord as He portrays Himself in Scripture, we have everything we will need and much more. This reminds me of what David writes in Psalm 73, 25, as he says to the Lord, And besides you, what do I have in heaven? And I have nothing I desire on earth besides you. Now that may be a far cry from where you are, and many times it's a far cry from where I am, but it's something for us to aspire to and to move toward. They will have that kind of relationship with the Lord. Now let's dig in to Psalm 23 and see how this can serve as a guide for us when it comes to our taking refuge in the name of the Lord. The first verse, the first line, The Lord is my shepherd. David knew what he was talking about here because he himself had begun his work life as a shepherd. He understood the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. He understood what Jesus speaks of in John chapter 10, verses 10 and 14, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You may recall in David's experience that on more than one occasion, the sheep who were his sheep, those sheep had been under attack from a bear a lion probably multiple times. And David faced off with those ferocious animals as a lad. He probably was a teenager. And he defeated both of them. He laid down his life for the sheep. And then Jesus goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd who knows his own and his own know him. That reminds me of what Jesus tells in a parable In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, he tells about a certain shepherd who, having grazed his sheep during the day, brings them in and gets them in the sheep pen before calling it a day. And as was this shepherd's practice, he counted each one. He knew each of them. How he could distinguish that could only be attested by a shepherd who has spent long hours shepherding sheep. And when he finished his counting, he had a hundred, but only ninety-nine were present. He recounts, still the same. So he says, there's one missing. And what does the Scripture say about this shepherd? He left all the sheep who were safe in the sheep pen, and he went and searched for the lost one until he found that sheep, brought it home, And Jesus likens that to a person whom he has found, a wayward sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. That's what the Scripture teaches about us. It's in our nature as sheep to stray. But what does the Lord do? He goes and he finds us and he brings us back to the sheepfold, the sheep pen, which is a place of great safety. So when we think of the Lord being our shepherd, David had a personal relationship to the Lord. And he saw the Lord as a shepherd. That would say at least this, when the Lord is your shepherd or my shepherd, he is my protector. He is our preserver. He cares so deeply for us. 
We could stop there and be done and be happy to know this is our God. He's not an impersonal God. He knows us by name. Of the billions of people who inhabit planet Earth, you are one, but you are important to the Lord. He knows your name. And He will search for you. And He will find you. Jesus said about Himself that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. I have talked to people in the course of even this calendar year who have said this to me. I'm lost. Well, they knew where they were geographically when they said that. They knew they were in El Paso and wherever we were meeting together. They knew where they were. What were they saying? Internally, my compass is messed up. I am not in a place of peace in my life. I'm lost. Well, take heart. Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for you. And He comes hunting for you. And He will find you. He's going to seek you. In fact, today your presence here on a rather dreary day, many of you could have opted to stay at home and say, well, it's, it's a nice day I can curl up and take a nap. I had a man say to me after the first service, said, Man, this is a day where I just want to curl up and light up a fire and go to sleep. I said, well, you got a little rest during the service. I noticed that. <laughs> but you could, have, you could have hung out at the house today. We don't have many of these days. But the Lord brought you here, really. He's seeking you today. He's your shepherd. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Being in the hand of Jesus. How does one get into the hand of Jesus? If no one can snatch me out of His hand, and I have the promise of being His sheep, and I will never perish, I want to know how to get into His hand. This may surprise you, but this is what Jesus Himself says. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never throw away. Once you and I are in the hand of the Lord, we are there for keeps. He is not going to banish us. He's not going to dispose of us. We are His prized possession. I hope you understand that there is a sense in which you and I, if we are in Christ, we are in His hand. But we are a reward that God the Father has given to Him for His part in the redeeming work of us. Finding us. Jehovah-Rohi is the name. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's just say the Lord is my shepherd together with this in mind. The Lord is my shepherd. And let's go back to Psalm 23. Look at the second statement that David makes about the outcome of the Lord's being his shepherd. He says, I shall not want. This brings to mind another of the names of the Lord. Jehovah Jireh. There's a song that in times past we have sung. It's been a long time since we've sung it here in our fellowship, but it's a peppy song and it's such an energetic song. He's our provider. Literally, the word gyra does not mean provider, however. Here's what it literally means. It means the Lord who sees. And the idea being that He sees your need as His sheep before you even have that need. Remember when Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount about prayer? He says, the Lord knows what you need before you ever ask Him. How is that possible? Well, He's God. He lives in eternity. He's present in time, in history. But in eternity, He knows the end from the beginning. And there's nothing that I need in my life that the Lord as my shepherd will not provide for me at the right time. Sometimes it's at that moment that we would describe as the eleventh hour. But nevertheless... He provides for me. This name surfaces in the book of Genesis chapter 22. It's the story of Abraham, the father of Israel. 
the Father of all true believers. People whose hearts have been changed, circumcised is the image that Paul uses in the last part of Romans 2. We have a new heart. We are descendants spiritually, if we know Jesus, from Abraham. Abraham is told as an old man that he's to take his son, his only son, whom he loved, Isaac. Now, put this in your own personal experience. What if the Lord told you? You only had one child. The Lord said to you, I want you to take this son whom you waited 100 years to become the father of. This miracle baby. And by this time, he was no longer a baby. The reason we know is because he was given the bundle of wood to take from where he was dwelling with his father and mother to Mount Moriah about a three days journey. And he would carry the wood. And on the way, he asked his father this question. He said, Father, I know we have the wood. I know we have the fire. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Well, there was no answer except this answer. The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. So he binds this boy up. The boy was probably 12, 14, maybe a little older. And he, somehow or another, there were a couple of servants who did not accompany up to this place of burnt offering. He gets him on the altar. He takes the knife from its sheath. He's getting ready to sacrifice the son in obedience to the father. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears, stops him. There's the bleating of a ram in the thicket. And the Lord provides the necessary sacrifice. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees. Please understand, if you know God through Jesus Christ, He is your provider. He sees what you and I need before we even know we have the need. That is a place of great rest. That has been the thing that I have seen so often in my life that does not relieve me of responsible management of the money that the Lord makes available to me. It does not relieve me of the management of the possessions I already have, that I'm not to take care of them, to make them last as long as I can possibly make them last in order to be a good steward of what I have. It doesn't relieve me of responsibility. But ultimately, He's the one who gave me the means whereby I could buy things or the money that I can put away for a rainy day. It's He who provides and He will continue to provide. For me. He's done it over and over and over again. David wrote many of these psalms. The majority of the psalms are from his hand. And in Psalm 37, verse 25, he makes this statement. I have been young, and this has become my testimony, and now I am old. Yet have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. I love that. It's a statement of fact, but it's also a promise as well. If I am a man who seeks after God's own heart, if I am a man who seeks first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then the necessities of life will be mine. And for all these years, that has been true. And before I was out of my father's house, I never once wanted for anything which I needed. Not one time. And it's because my Father, by the grace of God, followed the Lord too as a sheep of the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd takes care of His sheep. I will not want. My God shall supply all my needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. This is the promise for us who know the Lord. So we have knowledge of Jehovah-Rohi. He is our shepherd. We have knowledge of Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord is my provider. Would you just say that with me? The Lord is my provider. Amen. There's a third Jehovah-hyphenated name that appears in this next part. Look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. You know the phrase quiet waters literally interpreted means waters of rest. That speaks volumes to me. Look at the first line of verse 3. He restores my soul. That belongs, I believe, with the two lines before. He is not only our shepherd, He's not only our provider, He is our peace as well. Jehovah Shalom. Please understand that the Hebrew and biblical concept, therefore, of peace does not mean simply the absence of conflict. It includes that. We need peace in our country, don't we, right now? We need peace in our world. We need to pray for peace in this place, in Jerusalem, and all over the world. We need peace. And the Messiah, when He's predicted through the prophet Isaiah, is predicted as the wonderful counsel, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He gives us all things richly to enjoy. Everything that He has for us, He freely shares with us, this Jesus. And peace, perhaps, is as important as anything He gives to us. The Bible says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, that means being made right with God, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the conduit. He is the way whereby we can have peace with God. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. Jesus bequeathed His peace to us. He left us in His will. He left us peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Notice, He can't even bring Himself to call what the world gives that's supposedly peace. He can't even call it peace. It doesn't even rate with shalom. It's some sort of temporary, conditional kind of peace. Whereas the peace which He gives us is available to us no matter what our circumstances may be. This name surfaces first, Jehovah Shalom, in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 24. The background is that for generations, the Israelis have been tormented by the Midianites. The Midianites were too lazy to grow their own crops. And so what they did, they were warrior-like, and when time came for harvest, and the Israelis were great farmers, and they had harvested their grain... They would thresh it, and then all of a sudden, these hordes of Midianites riding camels would come, and they would terrorize and thieve all the hard work that the Israelis had done. One day, the man Gideon, he was fearful of a raiding band of Midianites. He's down in an underground place where he's threshing grain. That's no place to thresh grain. He's putting his shovel-like tool into the grain, the wheat or barley, which he has harvested. He throws it up and hopefully it will get high enough for the wind to blow away the chaff and the fruit will fall to the floor. And all of a sudden he has a guest. The angel of the Lord appears. And he says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And then this is the response of Gideon. And it's... A response that we might give, considering what he had dealt with and his ancestors before him at the hands of the Midianites. He says, if the Lord is with us, why has this happened to us? Have you ever felt like that? Some of you have. If the Lord is with us, why doesn't he do something? That's where Gideon was. And then the Lord began to speak to him through the angel of the Lord, and he proved himself to Gideon. You know the rest of the story. Insurmountable odds against the Midianites. Complete victory. Not a casualty won among the 300 Israelis. Now, let me stop here a moment. If you're one of those persons who's asked, where is the Lord? Well, He's where He's always been. He's with you. 
He is your peace. And even though you may not sense His presence, it does not mean He's not with you. If you know Him, He is with you. Be sure of that. And He causes even the negatives in our lives to turn out for our good and His glory. Know that Jesus understands trouble better than you will ever understand it. Jesus died for all our trouble when He went to the cross. The Bible tells us that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. The cross was unbelievable in terms of the suffering that Jesus experienced. We can't begin to appreciate it. But He had something down the road that enabled Him to wait on the Lord's deliverance. And the Lord delivered Him. Know that the Lord is with you. He's given His peace. His peace is priceless. And He will see you through. If you know Him, He will. Because He is Jehovah Shalom. Let's read it. The Lord is my peace. Well, let's read the next section. Before I do that, though, I'm going to forget this. The first line of verse 3, He restores my soul. I hope you're aware of the fact that the soul, the Greek translation of the word soul, in the Old Testament is the word suke. It's the word psyche when it's transliterated from Greek into English. It talks about psychology. Our soul is our psychology. We are people who are tormented in our souls. But the Lord wants to give you peace. He's your shepherd. And if you turn your heart to Him, He will give you peace in the middle of a storm. We have a song we sing, I think, called Peace in the Middle of the Storm. It's true. Jesus is the epitome of peace in a storm. We know the story. And He gives that peace to those who are His sheep. Here's the fourth Jehovah-hyphenated name. Beginning in the second line of verse 3, He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The word translates... Pass here in the New American Standard. You know what the word really means? Wagon tracks. So let's supply that and read it with that in mind. He guides me in the wagon tracks of righteousness. Now, what are wagon tracks? They're ruts in the road, aren't they? They may be considered things that have occurred to make the way clear and maybe passable. Well, think about Jesus. What I mentioned about Him earlier. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Now think about this with me one more moment. One of the translators translates the word author as pioneer. He is the pioneer and perfecter of my faith. Jesus is my leader. I'm called to follow Him. I keep my eyes on Him. I must if I'm going to follow Him. And when I follow Him, what happens? He leads me in the paths of righteousness. The righteousness that you and I have is a conferred righteousness. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, the Bible says that all your righteous acts are like filthy rags. Everything I could do, everything you could do, to try to make ourselves right with God falls flat. Because even our good works are unrighteous to God. Why? Because they are centered in ourselves. It's our effort to make ourselves right with God. And our lives are tainted by selfishness, sin. So that gives us a place of desperation when we know that. When we know the law of God and that we've broken the rules of God. And we have to be perfect to be made right with Him. But we can't make perfection as hard as we may try. We can't make it. But the Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu is the name which He gives to Himself. In Jeremiah 23, 6, pre-warning and telling the people about the coming of the Messiah, Jeremiah speaks on behalf of God and we hear God say that the name of the Messiah is the Lord our righteousness. Is Jesus our righteousness? 
If you're following along in your reading as you're reading through the New Testament, yesterday's reading was 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The next to the last verse in that says, among other things, that Christ Jesus is our righteousness. God the Father made Jesus the Son to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before we received Christ, we were in sin. Two incompatible territories. But then all of a sudden, by the grace of God, we heard the gospel. We received by faith the Lord Jesus Christ. He made us right with God. When we could not make ourselves right, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. But thank God that Jesus is the Son of Man who comes to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to seek us and save us and make us right. The word justified, I've alluded to it once, but let me give a slight interpretation of it. The word justified was a Roman court word. It was used to describe someone who was declared not guilty. When you received Jesus, trusted Christ to forgive you of your sin. You trusted Christ for His work on your behalf when He died on the cross. You trusted Christ that when He died, He did take the full punishment for your sin. And you cried out to Him and said, Lord, forgive me. When that happened, you were made perfect in the eyes of God. Nobody here would admit to being perfect. I doubt there'd be anybody who would say, I'm perfect. Because you're not, nor am I. But in Christ, we are. He has become our righteousness. We are in Christ. There is positional righteousness in Christ. But there's a gap. I call it the practical gap. The gap between who I am in Christ, I'm home free, If I die today, I'm going to heaven, not because of anything I've done, but because simply and solely because of what Jesus has done, I'm home free. I'm homeward bound and I'm home free. Nothing is going to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's great. But I have this sense, I want to be more obedient. I want to be more like Jesus, don't you? Now, we know that what the Bible says in the book of 1 John is true. It says, we will be like Him when we see Him. And we won't see Him until we either die or go to meet Him in the air when He comes the second time if we're alive for that. We're going to be like Him. So, what needs to happen between now and then? Salvation is bigger than just justification. That's huge. It has to happen. I must be made right with God and declared not guilty if I have any hope of going to be with the Lord forever in heaven. Not to mention a life of peace in this life, all the things we've looked at so far. But here's what happens. The Bible says in the book of Ezekiel 36, 27, it says, God speaks, I will put my spirit in you and I will move you. Get the picture? Here I am over here. The Spirit of God will move me. To be careful to keep the statutes and obey the laws of God. So the Spirit of God's presence in my life ensures that I'm going to be moving throughout the entirety of my life, sometimes by fits and starts, sometimes I make a deviation off the path, but the Lord brings me back. Remember, He goes and searches for me in my disobedience and my strength. He brings me back, but He's bringing me ever, ever, ever closer. That's what we call sanctification. Justification, sanctification, being brought to the Lord. Growing, being more useful to the Lord. And ultimately, glorification. When we end this life, we're with the Lord forever. We're freed, not simply from the penalty of sin or the power of sin, but we're free from the presence of sin forever. But the Lord works on me. He sanctifies me. Listen to this. In the book of Leviticus, verse 20, verses 7 and 8, the Bible says this, Consecrate yourself 
therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Who is it who sanctifies me? Who is it who makes me like Christ? It's none other than God Himself, the Spirit of God. God says, the work that I have begun in you, I will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. So, let's read this. The Lord is my righteousness. He's my shepherd. He is my provider. He's my peace. He is my righteousness. And look at the next statement. I like this one, and I think you do too. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. There is another name hyphenated, Jehovah Shema. It's found the last verse of the book of Ezekiel. It says, the Lord is there. He is with us, regardless of where we may find ourselves. Jesus never leaves you nor forsakes you. He has said that in many ways, and we can be sure of that. David knew this in his own life. He had his ups and downs, but the Lord was with him. So let's read this. The Lord is there. He is there with us. Here's the sixth of the seven Jehovah names which are suggested in this psalm. Look at the last line of verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We read from Exodus 17. And in the reading of that story out of the lives of the people of God as they wandered in the wilderness, they encountered an enemy, the Amalekites, and in a valley called Rephidim. And so what does Moses, their aged leader, do? He goes to a high point and he's there with two of his associates, Aaron, his older brother, who is the high priest, and a man named Hur. And what Moses does, he takes the rod of God, as it's described in Exodus 17. And how had he used that rod before? When he was facing off with Pharaoh's magicians, he took it and threw it on the ground. And what did that rod become? A snake, correct? Swallowing up the magician's transformation of their rods into snakes, showing the power of God. What did Moses use with the rod, use the rod for when he was with the children of Israel on the bank of the Red Sea? He used it to stretch out over the Red Sea, and what did the Red Sea do? It parted, and they walked through as if it were dry land. Not a single Israeli lost all the army of Pharaoh destroyed. So, he has the rod. As long as he's holding it up. Now, remember, this guy's in his 80s. It's hard to hold anything up for an extended period of time, even if you're in your 20s. It's tough. And so, he would get tired and he would sit down. And his arms still wanted to sag. And then they sagged. And what would happen then? Aaron and her would help him hold them up. This is a picture, by the way of our interceding for other people. Because what was happening down on the floor of the valley of Rephidim? There was this battle being waged. Every time that Moses' arms would grow weak and the rod of God would sink, then the Amalekites began to win. But as long as they were held up, the victory was theirs. And there was a final victory. Now, please understand this. We talked about the matter of supplication last week, praying for other people. I hope you understand that the real victory in this life for believers is victory won through intercessory prayer. The rest is gathering up the results of people who are steadfast in their praying. But in that text of Scripture, you will recall... In the 15th verse of Exodus 17, this is what we hear Moses saying, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi. That means He's the one who gives us victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith in Christ Jesus, is what the Bible says. The Bible says, What shall separate us from God's love? Will tribulation or will distress 
Or will persecution? Or will famine? Or will nakedness? Or will peril? Or will sword? Will those things separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is no, because through Christ, we are, and this is the interpretation of the New American Standard, we are super conquerors. In fact, we are more than super conquerors because of our relationship to the Good Shepherd. This is a tremendous thing. We don't have to be victims. We walk in victory over sin and over death, over Satan and over the world over our own flesh, our own selfishness, we can walk in victory because Jesus has given us the victory. He is Jehovah Nisi. And lastly, He is Jehovah Rapha. Let's read this. The Lord is my healer. He is our healer. And where does that come from in this text? Well, it's hinted at in the fact that He restores our soul. Many people are soul sick. There's more soul sickness represented in this room, I'm sure, than physical sickness. You're down. You're depressed. You're anxious. You're fearful. The Lord came to deliver you from all of that. He does. He heals us. And He says, You have anointed my head with oil. We know that the all... The oil usage in the Old Testament in particular is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. If any of you is sick, let him call the elders of the church to come and pray for you. They're to anoint you with oil and pray for you. To trust the Holy Spirit for healing. Some of you are here today and you're still sick physically. You're physically sick. Maybe psychologically ill. You're here. And you prayed and you prayed and you prayed. To no avail. You may have even asked the elders to pray for you, and you still don't see any healing. This is puzzling, this is troubling for you, and it's troubling for all of us because when the Bible says, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers, it's true. If we really are connected in the body, we hurt when our brothers and sisters suffer. So, what is it about this whole matter of healing? David says in Psalm 103, and by the way, David died at the age of 70. He had poor circulation. We know from what is told us in 1 Kings chapter 1, he suffered from bad circulation. He had some kind of problem with his heart or he had hardening of the arteries as it used to be called. Something like that. He died at the age of 70. He died. We're all going to die. But God had healed him undoubtedly from illnesses prior to that. Because he says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord and forget none of His benefits. The second of which he enumerates is, He heals all your diseases. I've been sick before, and most of you have been sick before too. Sometimes it's been just little minor things like a cold or whatever. Sometimes it's been more serious, requiring surgery. Well, here are the ways that our God heals. Sometimes He heals directly. Many of you could attest to that. I talked to a lady after the first service, and she said she was diagnosed with cancer in 2010 and never received any kind of physical medical treatment for it, and she's clean of cancer. That's a miracle, isn't it? But there probably is more than one woman present today who has suffered from breast cancer, and you were not healed that way. You've been healed, and you've been healed by the Lord, but it was through medical science. We have many physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and physicians' assistants. We have a lot of medical people who have trained. God's given them insight into how to treat sickness. Thank God for doctors. And God uses physicians to bring healing to us, right? Medical science. That's another way we're healed. And some of us are healed through just the natural ability God has built into the human body to heal. It's amazing. If you wait long enough, you get well. I had a wisdom tooth removed two weeks ago tomorrow. And I'll tell you, for the first week, it was so far back, I couldn't get back there to look at it to see if I had dry socket. I looked up dry socket on the internet. I was within an inch of calling my dentist and saying, hey, I need to come in for you to take a look at this thing. It is hurting me. 
But I didn't. But you know what happened after about a week? I got well. Thank God for that. That's the healing property. I didn't take anything for it. But it got well. That's the body's capacity to heal. And guess who's behind that? The Lord's our healer, isn't He? Ultimate healing comes when we who know Jesus meet Him and we receive a new body. Though the outer man is wasting away in the meantime, the inner person can be renewed every day. And we can cry out to the Lord. And we can praise the Lord that He is our shepherd. Praise Him that He is our provider. Praise Him that He is our peace in the middle of the storm. Praise Him that He is there with us come thick or thin. If I ascend to heaven, He is there, is what David wrote. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, behold, He's even there. Everything between heaven and hell, He's there. And He's there for you and me. And I can take great comfort that He is my righteousness. This is maybe the best of all. After all, I'm just passing through and you are too. The most important thing is our relationship to our Creator. And Jesus has made it possible with the Father's permission to save us from our sins. We're right with God in Christ. Thank the Lord. He is Jehovah Nisi, my victory. He's my healer. Would you begin to pray about, and I've taken 40 minutes to talk about this. You say, I know. Okay. But this is worth more money than you'll ever make in your life. Not this sermon, but the truth that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And you need to make a beeline for it if you yet have done that. If you settle for something less than the name of the Lord, you are jilting yourself and you are jilting God because He says, for my sake... I make people right. My sake is what he said. And I remember their sin no more. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your many faceted name. We thank you that there's much more to who you are than what we have heard about this morning. And we're trusting you, Lord, to create in us a heart that runs to You and resides in You. When we're up against the difficulties of this life, thank You for who You are, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.